Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Next week, we look at a complicated and a, a brutal London murder which remained unsolved for a number of years. It baffled detectives. Today's case is, well, on the surface it's much more straightforward, but in my view it's just as fascinating. I hope you enjoy it too. To many of us who dreamt of being a professional sports person, we are fascinated when those people who are living our dreams, and they appear to have it all, when they spectacularly get it wrong and become involved in serious crime. Probably the highest profile case in recent years is Aaron Hernandez, who, as you probably know, he starred for the New England Patriots in the NFL before being found guilty of the murder of an acquaintance, Odin Lloyd. He was found guilty in April 2015 and will now spend the rest of his life in prison. There are plenty of examples here in the UK, but the highest profile one this year was Adam Johnson, a professional footballer in the Premier League of Sunderland, who on the 24th of March 2016 was sentenced to six years in prison for grooming and sexual activity with a girl aged just 15. In today's episode, we move to a sport much less mainstream than NFL or Premier League football. Today we look at cricket. Cricket has always been marketed as a gentleman's game, but if you're not familiar with the game, please don't be fooled. The days of polite applause and impeccable manners, they're long behind us. The global authorities are currently considering introducing a red card system similar to football for bad behaviour. And in UK club cricket in 2015, at least five games were cancelled for serious violent behaviour. Verbal abuse to the umpires is, is standard nowadays. The growth of the professional game, especially of the T20 version of cricket, which is a shorter version with much more action, music and drama, has led to a new breed of younger, much more aggressive cricketers who are actually able to make a lot of money rapidly and the environment is changing very quickly. In the UK, the underachievement of our national cricket team is one, it's like the weather, we just accept it, it's always been the same, we always underachieve. Well, not the weather, but the cricket team, of course, underachieves. The weather is just the weather. One of the lowest points in English cricket, however, was the 1990s. We were utterly rubbish at this time, and Australia were on fire. They ruled the world. They were outstanding. A great cricket team. And this is where we begin our story today. One of the more exciting English cricketers in this era of underachievement was Claremont Christopher Lewis, he was better known to the public as Chris Lewis. Born in 1967 in Guyana, Lewis was the son of a preacher. His father was a Baptist teacher and he was raised by his mother and a rather imposing grandmother following his parents' divorce. He idolised the great West Indian batting legend Sir Vivian Richards and he played street cricket but he couldn't bowl over arm until he was 12. That was two years after he moved to England to be with his father. While at Wilsden High School in northwest London, he signed for a professional county side, Leicestershire. He was aged 17. His exceptional physique, which still impressed coaches two decades later, helped to get him selected for the England side. Lewis represented three first-class counties, Nottinghamshire, Surrey and Leicestershire, in the 1990s, and he also played for England in 33 test matches, that's the full five-day version of the game, and 53 one-day internationals from 1990 to 1998. 
Now, Lewis was seen as a aggressive, exciting, low-order batsman. He was a he's a really good, actually, fast, medium bowler, and he was a great all-round fielder, very, very athletic. He was regarded as a colourful player in a game which at the time was really lacking personalities. He was once dubbed the next Ian Botham. Now, for those who don't follow cricket, Botham was just a just a legend. He was an all-action hero on and off the field who pulled off some of the most amazing moments cricket has ever seen. But Chris Lewis, he never quite reached a height so many observers have predicted for him. He was a freakish athlete who would show glimpses of impossible brilliance, but he frustrated many coaches who questioned his commitment and his effort. Writing in the Guardian newspaper, journalist James Meikle said, Lewis was a player about whom descriptions such as promising and multi-talented soon turned to mercurial and enigmatic, and long before the end of his international career, fragile and lacking in confidence. He was dogged by injury and had a condition known as Raynaud's phenomenon that affected his circulation. Lewis was nothing if not his own man. He didn't follow the crowd of his fellow cricketers. He once posed naked for a women's magazine and he spent almost every day in the gym honing his fat-free physique. He studied the Bible and he appeared to leave a very clean life away from the game. He was a genuine athlete in the era where many professional cricketers weren't. Times were slowly changing as cricketers became more athletic, but not by much. The classic story of the cricket drinking culture involves the legendary Australian open batsman David Boone, a fine cricketer with 107 tests and 21 centuries under his substantial belt. No one really remembers Booney for his cricketing ability. Everyone remembers him for his legendary drinking. In particular, the infamous flight from Sydney to London in 1983, when he allegedly achieved a record of 52 cans of beer en route to that year's Ashes series. Now, on, on the contrary, uh, Lewis hardly ever socialised with teammates. He wasn't part of the heavier drinking English crowd, and indeed he never touched alcohol at all. He was different in many other ways too. One time, Lewis arrived late for an England match, given the excuse for a flat tyre. On another occasion, for an England team get-together, he turned up in Newport in South Wales when he was due to meet up with his teammates in Newport, Shropshire. That's 124 miles and a two-hour, 20-minute drive away. Derek Pringle was a former England teammate of Lewis and, and he wrote that he was very popular for his unfailing courtesy and decency, although he added, Just as his body seemed perfect, his mind often appeared a confused mess and he was remarkably uncertain of himself for a top-level sportsman. That uncertainty often manifests itself as migraines and he pulled out of more than one big match because of them. With his all-round abilities, he should have been a captain's dream, but often he just ended up frustrating everybody, though not as much, I suspect, as he frustrated himself. Pringle spoke about some peculiarities that, that Lewis had. During the 1992 World Cup in Australia, he said he had the antisocial habit of ordering just about everything on the room service menu. He would take one mouthful of each and then just leave it there to smell out the room. I suppose more than any other story about Lewis that people remember, he was... He was labelled by the Sun tabloid newspaper as, quote, the Pratt without a hat, 
on a tour in the West Indies in 1994. In the sun and the heat of the West Indies, all the other players were protecting themselves, wearing hats and sun cream. But Lewis, a few days before, he shaved his head, so he's bald head, and he arrived on the pitch for a long day in the field with no hat at all. During the day, he was forced off the field with sunstroke. The Pratt without a hat. The end of his career, it didn't end well for, for Lewis. He, he actually felt he was driven out of county cricket after he alleged that three of his England teammates had taken bribes to throw matches. This was a charge that was never substantiated. He was subsequently jeered by crowds and cold-shouldered by other players, including his county teammates. It coincided with a decline in his form and he left professional cricket aged just 32. Now, after the sudden end to his career, Lewis, he, he wasn't quite sure what to do. He worked for the council in Nottingham for a short period of time. He then set up a small academy in Slough in Berkshire, where he carried out a bit of coaching. But with the rise of the T20 game that we spoke about a few minutes ago, he, he saw the money that was now in the game for him, so he attempted to make a comeback for the top county side, Surrey. To prepare for this, Lewis spent some time in Australia to get fit and properly prepare for the comeback. But unfortunately, this didn't work out at all, and he struggled physically with his hips not holding up to the demands of professional sport. Lewis was now feeling the financial pressures of losing his relatively high-paid career with not much to replace it. And although to the world he kept up his happy-go-lucky persona, in private, his financial difficulties were really beginning to weigh him down. Now that his cricket career was finally over, what was he going to do next? After leaving professional cricket, one of the friendships that Lewis had formed was with a chap called Chad Kernan. Kernan, who like Lewis had been born in the Caribbean before moving to the UK with his family. He lived with his mum, sister and brother in a flat in Islington, North London. Kernan was an ex-professional basketball player with the London Towers in the English Basketball League Second Division, which is a lower-level amateur division. Not quite making the grade here, he'd recently played for a less high-profile Somalian team, but he was now unemployed. He told his family he was hoping to start a plumbing course, which was going to set him back about £10,000, but he didn't have that sort of money available, and he told his family he was struggling to afford to pay for it. The two men had known each other for two or three years, but it's unclear just how close they were. They'd lost touch before they bumped into each other once again in North London in the autumn of 2008. Over a game of pool one evening, Lewis and Kernan planned a spontaneous week-long trip to St Lucia in the Caribbean for the following month. Now, about 10 days before the trip to St Lucia, Kernan told his family that something had come up and he was off to the Caribbean, but he was very vague about the details. On arrival in St Lucia, Kernan was stopped at the airport and was found to have £7,000 in cash on him. This isn't illegal in any way, but why was he carrying this much cash for a one-week trip? Finding this much money caused the St Lucian authorities to tip off the UK Customs Service. And unbeknown to Lewis and Kernan, this meant that the two men would be stopped and greeted by customs officers on their return. Why the suspicion? Well, the Caribbean is the gateway for drugs to be imported into the UK from South America, in particular cocaine. As you probably know, 
Back in the 1980s, Pablo Escobar's Colombian cartel used the numerous islands to move cocaine onwards. Especially with the tightening of Mexico's borders, ruthless gangs are now using the Caribbean again. Many of the islands are former British colonies where residents have British passports. Martinique and Guadalupe are in French territory, while Puerto Rico is within the US customs barriers. The islands also have quiet beaches that are easy for speedboats to land on, and there's limited security. It is currently estimated that the Caribbean accounts for around 25-30% to of the cocaine reaching Europe. The drug trade is lucrative, and it's also attractive to the region's young people, who are often deprived of economic and job opportunities. The booming drug trade has gone hand-in-hand with a rise in murders, violence and organised crime. St Lucia is an attractive spot for cocaine smuggling due to it having an international airport with regular flights to Western Europe. A quick Google search for 2016 will reveal numerous cases of cocaine being smuggled from St Lucia across the world in a variety of different ways. And of course, these are just a tiny minority who actually get caught. The authorities in St Lucia are concerned that their beautiful country, and if you haven't been there, please do go. The scenery is stunning, the people are fantastic, but they're concerned it's been seen as a base for cocaine smuggling. It's getting some bad press. Just in August this year, a search of a 93-box consignment by UK Customs identified approximately 6.8 kilos of cocaine concealed inside nine hollowed-out breadfruit. The St Lucia Minister of Agriculture, Excel Joseph, he expressed his disappointment and his outright disapproval for such activity, which he said has the potential to put the local industry in jeopardy. The minister and all the St Lucian authorities have said they will support any investigation and they're pleased when these drugs are found so it can be rooted out from their country. Back to our story. At the end of their week's holiday, Lewis and Kernan separately boarded the Virgin flight from St Lucia to Gatwick Airport, which is the UK's second largest airport after Heathrow. They arrived in the early morning of Monday the 8th of December 2009. Lewis was stopped first at just after 5am as he passed through the green Nothing to Declare channel, with Kernan being stopped around 10 minutes later. When questioned, Lewis maintained that he'd been in St Lucia visiting family and friends. He was carrying a man's handbag and a cricket bag, which contained cans of fruit and vegetable juice. When they were opened, the five cans contained a brownish liquid that smelt of chemicals and it turned out to be dissolved cocaine. Evaporating off that liquid would have yielded, I think, 3.75 kilos of pure cocaine. Customs officers went through the rest of Lewis's belongings, where they found traces of cannabis in his suit carrier and on cigarette papers tucked into a paperback book. Lewis admitted smoking cannabis with Kernan on the trip. He said he bought cannabis from a taxi driver on two occasions, one in St Lucia, and had smoked the drug with Kernan on the patio outside his room. Lewis was adamant he'd never tried cocaine, let alone smuggled it. When Lewis was told by the officer that he was carrying cocaine, he replied, Could there be some mistake? before refusing to answer any further questions, just saying no comment. Conan was also found to be in possession of cocaine within three tins of fruit. He claimed he brought his three tins of fruit juice at a shop in St Lucia and was just bringing them back for his mother. 
At Gatwick, Lewis and Kernan both claim they were not travelling together, but travelling alone. However, after some basic investigation following the tip-off from the St Lucian authorities, UK customs officers knew this wasn't the case, and they'd come from St Lucia together and had flown out there together. In fact, they'd even shared a taxi together to Gatwick. There was no doubt they knew one another. Kernan's name was also found written on the label of Lewis's bag, and other links between the two men suggested it was a joint enterprise. It seems clear they were actually travelling together. The question is, did one or both men actually know they were smuggling cocaine? At their trial, at Croydon Crown Court, the two pleaded not guilty to smuggling the cocaine. Jurors were told the plan involved packing liquid cocaine into tins of fruit from the Caribbean with the intention of burning it to powder form in Britain. The street value of the cocaine, which would at 100% purity weigh 3.37 kilograms, they've given the haul an estimated street value of 140,000 UK pounds. First into the dock was Lewis. When examined by customs officers, the five tins of juice inside his Puma cricket bag were found to contain a brown liquid, which smells of chemicals, which turned out to be dissolved cocaine. Lewis said he'd absolutely no idea there was cocaine in the cans. He thought he was just carrying fruit juice. He told the court he'd little knowledge of drugs and had not known it could be made into a liquid. Since their arrest, the two had fallen out, each blaming each other for what had happened. Lewis had stated he was travelling alone and he'd packed his luggage himself. He said that Conan had asked him to carry five cans for him because he was worried his luggage was overweight, adding, I don't necessarily believe Mr Kernan wanted me to get caught, but if you infer by Mr Kernan giving me the cans, then he set me up, then yes. Generally throughout my life, my cricket career, when things have gone wrong, it's done so in a very public way. Lewis claimed that while they were on remand at High Down Prison in Surrey awaiting trial, Kernan had asked him to take full responsibility in return for 100k. He said, until that point it was a simple case, you'd give me the juice, just say so, the story's over. Now he's trying to get a piece of cash out of me. He continued, the first time the 100k came up was when Mr Kernan came up to me and he basically thought that he was in trouble because of the £7,000 that was seized in St Lucia. And he said he wasn't going to take the risk of going not guilty and taking X amount of years. And then he asked me, what was it worth? Those were his exact words. Kernan was found with three tins of dissolved cocaine in his luggage when he was stopped. He said he had no idea the tins contained drugs and the juice was a gift for his mother. He also told a different story about the £7,000 in cash that was carried into St Lucia, blaming Lewis. According to him, Lewis had asked him to carry his man bag containing flat cash on their flight from Gatwick to St Lucia, as Lewis had told him he was carrying more money than he would be allowed. I told him to put it in the backpack. It wasn't a big deal, just a little bag. Kernan went on to tell the court that the pair had sat separately on their outbound flight a week earlier and on arriving in St Lucia, Lewis had initially wanted his bag back but had then told him to hold on to it and so they were outside. Kernan explained how when he was asked by airport customs officials if he had any money to declare, he said yes, but he thought there was just a few hundred pounds in the bag. 
When the bag was opened and it was found to contain £7,000 in separate £1,000 bundles, Conan told officers the money was to help his uncle. He said that this was following the advice of Lewis, who had told him that if he was quizzed, he was to say he was helping out his family. Firmly putting the blame on Lewis, Conan explained that on the penultimate day of their week-long stay, Lewis had purchased eight tins of juice at a store and on later weighing his bag asked him to take three of them, which he had done. He said that apart from two occasions during their stay in St Lucia, both men had spent their holiday together, had a great time relaxing. He recalled how on his return to the UK, he was stopped by customs officers as he walked alone for the Green Channel. He told officials he was not travelling with anyone else and had not been given anything. He was shocked when officers searched the bag and informed him the tins of juice contained suspected drugs. Asked why he did not mention Mr Lewis, he said, quote, He had his own little doubts, but then he thought, it couldn't possibly be, because he was a professional cricketer. Jurors were told that while in custody after being charged with importing Class A drugs, Mr Kernan said that Lewis had told him he knew about the drugs and he'd done it before. He claimed Lewis had gone on to explain he'd done the same thing in different locations in the Caribbean, including Grenada, Jamaica and Barbados. Lewis vehemently denied this. The jury at Croydon Crown Court took less than four hours to find them both guilty. Judge Nicholas Ainley told both men they'd been motivated by greed and would be handed the same prison sentence of 13 years in prison. He said, In a cowardly attempt to evade justice, you each sought to blame the other for a crime you obviously jointly committed. Drug smugglers would not entrust a valuable cargo like this to an innocent traveller. Addressing Lewis directly, he said, You made it to the top of your profession. This was greed, and I'm sure that you ran the risk that you did because you deduced that the risk was worth it because the rewards were so substantial. You were knowingly and willingly engaged in major organised crime. So were they both equally guilty, or, as Kernan alleged in the trial, was Lewis a serial smuggler of cocaine, and was Kernan just caught up in this one episode? Despite Lewis trying to pin the blame on Kernan, on his release six years later, in 2015, he did seem to admit his guilt. Although not stating implicitly that he was guilty, talking of the events leading up to his imprisonment, Lewis said, I made choices. They were the wrong choices, and I say sorry for them. Since his release, Lewis has tried to give back to the cricketing community to help avoid other young players making the same mistakes. He's been welcomed by the English cricket family, working with the Professional Cricketers Association, visiting each of the 18 first-class counties to talk about his experiences and to encourage young players to safeguard their futures and protect themselves from the financial troubles that led Lewis to make the poor choices. Lewis is now trying to make a new life following his time in prison and many want to allow him the chance to do so and put his undoubted talent and experience into helping the young players avoid the pitfalls lurking ahead. Cricketers in England have until recently earned very little. Now with the growth of the T20 form of the game, there are huge salaries on offer, and especially in the hotbed atmosphere of India, cricketers are national heroes. If Lewis was at his peak today, he would certainly be a millionaire. The modern game of cricket with its love of flamboyant instead of love Lewis. 
the Indian Premier League and the big bash competition in Australia would have loved to have him involved. This would have resulted in a much higher media profile, endorsements and sponsorship deals. However, others disagree that he should benefit from his crime. What do you think? I think it's a strong argument that because of pure greed, Lewis chose to make a decision that ended with him going to prison for a long time. He didn't take responsibility at the time of the trial and has arguably only since admitted some level of responsibility so he could be released early from prison. We should not feel sorry for him and encourage him to make money off the back of his life of drug importation. What about the lives of those affected by such people and their families? The crimes committed by drug users to fund their habits such as house burglaries or robbery. So sure the argument goes Lewis should be allowed to come out of prison and get on with his life but to make money off the back of his crime is seen as wrong by many. If he does write a book or have a film made of his life and these have been spoken about or get paid just for articles maybe he should be donating a large proportion of this cash to help those whose lives are affected by drugs rather than enjoying a life of luxury. I really hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. Do please head to our website at uktruecrime.com and sign up to be the first hearing about an exciting piece of news ahead of the official launch. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Bye for now.